Hi, welcome to What's on Your Mind. What can we learn from Jay Franze? Who? Jay Franze? He's actually a VP at G4S. It's a security company. He's based in the US. He was born in Boston and now he has been living for more than 20 years in Nashville. Nashville is a very famous music city, especially known for its country scene. The best musicians in the world are living and working in Nashville. Now, Jay has been a sound engineer for uh, a lot of his life, and he has mixed a lot of uh, hit records, where we're going to talk about in the podcast. But right now, he's a VP of uh, Big Corporate Soji for us, like I explained, and he's also a coach. He has also his own podcast, Frenzy and Friends, which I really recommend, and it's about leadership. Enjoy Jay Frenzy. It's a podcast about music and leadership. Bye-bye. Welcome to What's on Your Mind with Peter Snowart. Every week, a guest talks about his or her story, and that story can inspire you to change your own. Here's Peter. All right, the tape is rolling, Jay. Fantastic. I, I, can, I can say that because uh, I think... You have also experienced, just like me, the ages where people really used tape. <laughs> years and years of it, my friend. Yes. Now, um, first of all, if I correct Jay, what, your last name, how do you know, how do you pronounce that? Is that Franze or Franzi? How you Franzi, pronounce that? Franzi, yes, sir. Franzi, okay. So nice meeting you. Nice to meet you. Now, um, if I'm correct, you are born in Boston? Yes, absolutely. Just outside of Boston, a small town called Peabody. Okay, cool. And then um, you moved to a town that I, of a city that I really want to go to, if I'm correct, after your studies. And that's the only city, that that's at least what they told me in the US, that the statue when you enter the, the city is not an, uh, a war legend, but it's actually a guitar player. It's called Stevie Ray Vaughan. Nice. And it's in Austin. Oh, Austin. No, I'm, I was in Nashville. By Nashville. Okay. Ooh, Similar, but mistake. different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how, what, what's the deal that, I mean, Nashville, for, from a point of view of Europe, it sounds like the best of the best, the elite of, in, in terms of musicians are based there. How did you get there? No, that's a good question. Um, Nashville was an amazing place. Uh, I lived there for just over 20 years. And what happened was when I was in Boston, I, I wanted to work in the, in the entertainment industry. I wanted to record music. So I went to a school um, just outside of Ohio in, or just outside of Columbus, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And I went there when I finished. I went back to Boston, all prepared and ready to, to go conquer the world and realized that there was just because I had a piece of paper in my hand didn't mean that I was ready to, to conquer the world just yet. So I worked under a few mentors in Boston, eventually moved to New York, and then found myself in Nashville when I wanted to try to break into the, we'll call it the big time, where I was able to work with some of the more known country artists and producers and make some records that people have actually heard of. And did you play an instrument or do you were a producer or... No, I was an engineer recording and mixing records. Ah, okay. um, I did end up producing a handful of records. I, I do not consider myself a musician. I know how to play, but I'm not very good. My brain can tell my fingers what to do, but my fingers don't want to listen to my brain. Yeah, but I mean, never, ever underestimate the power of a great sound engineer. I mean, if the band is good, a sound engineer can make it excellent. 
But if the band is great, the sound engineer can break them down. Oh, it's very true. I mean, that's one of the things that when I was teaching at the college, we used to teach the the up and coming engineers was that, you know, just because they're not the ones out there performing doesn't mean that they're not every bit as important and they could they could truly ruin a person's day or they could they could make a, a fantastic live show or a fantastic album. Yeah. That's why I think uh, when I'm, I'm also a musician, I'm a guitar player. So the first thing what I do is when I enter the room, I'm going to meet the sound engineers and I make that I'm well connected with them. So oh. it means giving them beer or whatever they want. <laughs> so that, I mean, because I'm the guitar player, most of the time, in the past, they would say, uh, Mr. Can you turn that back line down, please? That guitar amp is way too loud. Uh, but of course, now I'm playing digital, so I don't have that issue anymore. They love me because of that, of <laughs> course. Um, so, but when you have good contacts and a good connection, um, you could do a little more. So, uh, but today there is no, you don't do any sound engineering at all. It's something from the past, Jay. Well, it's not something that I I do on a day-to-day basis. These days I have to pick my projects a little bit more strategically. I I'm lucky enough to... At this point in that world, I, I only work on projects that I want to work on, where in the past I would end up working on any project that would come my way because I would have to pay the bills, put food on the table. But these days I have a diverse career, so I don't have to rely on the entertainment industry to to be what brings the money in and puts the food on the table. So yeah. now that allows me to be a little bit more selective. Yeah. So you're a coach, you're a leader, and you're also a VP uh, for for a corporate company, G4S. Um, I mean, h- how did you move from being in the entertainment sector as a sound engineer to 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 a coach slash uh, leader slash VP of a of a, a corporate? H- how do how did you do that? I mean, sure. was it you wake up and you're like, mm, I'm going to become a VP of a for corporate companies selling software and all security services, etc. Yeah. My wife told me I had to do it. No. Um, so I was working in the entertainment industry. Like I said, I was in Nashville for about 20 years. And then what ended up happening is the industry took a turn. And when the industry started to change and more people were working out of their homes instead of in the studios, the the need for the big studios and the big producers and everything started to dry up a little bit. And, it's and kind once, of sorry to interrupt you, but oh, sure. when was that? Was that in the end of the nineties? That was about I would say just about ten, twelve years ago. Okay. So, and then what ended up happening is, if you wanted to work, you had to to be a little bit more innovative and find new ways of doing it. So what I ended up doing was taking the artists that I was recording and producing records for, I would then go on the road with them and then start working on the road. And that turned into, you know, being more of a booking agent and turned into being a road manager and an artist management. So what ended up happening is that career in music turned more administrative which let me led me to work with the transportation companies and arrange tour buses and um, car service, and I ended up enjoying it. So I went to work for one of the car services. I did that for a couple of years, and as I was doing that, I was then trans- transporting all the security details, and mm. I ended up transitioning right into the security details, and then I spent the past 10 years doing that. 
And I worked my way up in that industry to the point where I was able to become the VP of the company and and um, spend the past three plus years as a VP of the company and actually five years at this point. And I mean, is there some kind of secret to become a VP? I mean, did you um, were very political or did you, uh, I don't know, <laughs> how, how, what was the secret? What, did, what was, the, was the trick there? You know what? I, I would always say there's no secrets. You work hard, you do the right things. But no, there are secrets. And I think there's things that people didn't tell me as I grew up and went through the industry and things that I've always tried to tell my new recruits and the people that are coming in. You know, we get a lot of people that come into the door weekly that join our orientation classes that want to come in and work in the industry. But they're doing it because they need a job. They're doing it because they need money right now, whether mm -hmm. it's to put themselves through school or whether it's retirement. But nobody ever comes thinking of it as a career. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do is mentor them to the point where they know that, hey, if I was able to turn this into a career, so could you. And these are the steps you have to take. And I think for me, the the best thing I could have ever done with the years in the entertainment industry It's cutthroat. It's hard. I mean, you know, as a guitar player, you, you got to fight for every gig you have. You have to fight for every opportunity you get. Mm -hmm. Every job that comes your way, there's 10 more people standing right behind you waiting for you to fail so they can step in and take over. Mm -hmm. So that pressure and that ability to take my time and, and, brand and brand myself and build a reputation of a quality product... So then when I went into the to the security industry, I did the same thing. I started at a lower level position. I tried to prove myself. I tried to fight as if there was 10 more people standing behind me. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, like everybody else would say is I worked hard and I, I put in the effort. And if it required five hours of effort, I put in 10 hours of effort. And mm -hmm. if, if it required one person to know, I made sure two people knew. And I would just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and making myself visible and showing that I was there and I was there for the right reasons. And I think that's the the trick is showing people that you have that drive and desire to, to do what it takes to make it. But you're not only VP, you also have a coaching business and you have also written books. Why did you also start on the side your coaching business was it uh, the the principles that you have learned through the years that you want to um pass them on to the younger uh, younger to other people to help them uh excel no that's a, a good point and it is there's there's definitely truth to all of that but what ended up happening is as i mentioned the new recruits and i try to mentor them what i would always do we always hear the term oh i have an open door policy Well, I truly wanted to have an open door policy. So I told anybody, you know, it's hard. You say you have an open door policy, but when somebody comes to you and you're middle, in the middle of trying to put together a financial report for, for the board, board of directors, you know, you don't have time to stop and talk to everybody who comes to your door. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I made a standing time every Wednesday night after, after hours. So if we shut down the office at five, At, from six o'clock to 10 o'clock, I would leave the doors open and I would allow people to come in and we'd host like a, almost like a mini seminar where we would get up, pick a topic that people might need to know in order to, to advance their career. And then we would teach them that mm -hmm. even if it was teaching them how to put together a resume or how to learn a new piece of software, or if you were wanting to break into our world of operations, 
Maybe you needed to know how to use the scheduling software. So I would do that every Wednesday night. Every Wednesday night, I would do that for my team. And that just built on the coaching. And I ended up with more and more people reaching out to me saying, hey, can you help me do this? And then it started to be people outside of the industry. Mm -hmm. And then it took even a a crazier turn about a year, year and a half ago now when um, everybody was hit with COVID. We couldn't do those Wednesday night sessions anymore. We had to shut the office down and we had to have minimum staffing. So we couldn't invite people into the office. So I started doing it similar to what we're doing now and doing it on an online basis. And then that started to take off and people started to like it to the point where we turned it into a show. And now we do that every Monday and Wednesday nights live. People can come on and ask us questions and we pick topics to talk about and people to to interview. And we've just turned that all into coaching. And, and yes, there's been a couple books, but it's just all about trying to help people. And that's the, the show you're talking about, the Monday and the Wednesday, that's the Frenzy and French uh, podcasts, yes. correct? Yes, sir. Okay, cool. Now, um, the people that you are, that you are recruiting, um, they are for in your operations department. Yeah, we're recruiting their entry-level officer positions. So anybody yes. that wants to come in, as long as they go through the, the steps to get licensed we can then put them out in the field. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to trivialize the position. It does require licensing and it does require some sort of training, but it is an entry-level position that if anybody wants to come along and get it, they can come as long as they take the steps, they can become Mm -hmm. an officer. But it's the next steps from there that people struggle with, and that's whether or not it's becoming a shift supervisor or Mm -hmm. a site supervisor or even an account manager or so on and so forth to work their way up into the operations world where it's more administrative than it is actually performing the the functions of an yeah. officer. Uh, your direct reports, I mean, I assume that you all sometimes also have an, uh, a slot and that you that people can apply for that uh, position and they would meet you, I mean, after they have seen HR and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera correct? Oh, yeah. No, um, I I used to try to get very heavily involved with my recruiting staff. I believe that in our world that recruiting is the lifeblood because without taking people into our organization, we don't have people to go out and perform the service. So that's a very, very important position. And I told my recruiting manager that from day one when she was hired, I informed her that, look, your position is probably the most important position in this organization. And she kind of chuckled and laughed. But as time went on, I kept saying it and kept saying it. And I think now she believes it and understands that, look, she's got a very important position. Everybody's metrics in the organization comes down to whether or not she's bringing people through the door. Mm-hmm. So whether it be senior leadership, whether it be the operations team, whether it be the officers in the field, they're all trying to do one thing. And that's provide a service with minimum overtime without missing any hours of service. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have the people in the field to do that, we're overtaxing the current staff, which causes turnover. And then it also causes overtime and it causes us to lose um, what we call dark hours, which are hours of service that were requested, but we're unable to provide because we don't have the manpower. Hmm. And when somebody with a direct report candidate and is meeting you, what are you looking for in candidates and how are you going to... Um uh, how do you say that? Quantify how we're going to measure that candidate. 
Are you going to do that based on intuition? Uh, how, how are you going to ask the, the questions like, what are your strong points? What are your weaknesses? Uh, where do you want to be in five years? How, how do you tell a, an excellent candidate with the, How can you spot, that's my question, how can you spot a candidate where you can see the real true potential, but they don't see that yet? How do you do that? Sure. I think that comes back from my background. Um, I'm I'm Italian. I'm from Boston. I've got a strong personality. Um, I believe in education, but I don't believe it's the be all and end all. I've mm -hmm. fought very hard to become educated, and I believe that that has value and it is important, but it is not everything you need to be successful. Okay. So to me, those standard questions of, you know, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Where do you see yourself in five years? Those might be good questions for certain people, but they're not for me. Mm -hmm. Now, my recruiting team might go through a series of questions like that or qualifying mm -hmm. questions, whether or not you're certified for the position or you're not. What training do you have for the to get licensed or you don't? But by the time somebody gets to me, it's more about the, the conversation and the personality And do I get the feeling that you're telling me the truth or you're a good person to be around, especially when we start talking about management level where the teams yep. get smaller and smaller and smaller? To me, it's more about, hey, are you going to fit into the team? Are you going to be good for the the environment here in the office? Are you going to contribute to what we have going on? Or are you going to fight it? And, you know, that comes from conversation. It doesn't come from a question. Okay. You know, everybody's ready to give you the right answers on an interview. It's just like everybody puts the right things down on a resume. That's fantastic. It got you in the door, but now let's just talk. Let's just see how you're doing. And you can identify if somebody has what it takes to make it or not. And and what are the things that you're looking for? Are you looking for that if they are listening, if they are asking questions, if the, if they are uh, creating a kind of a conversation or if if they are talking all the time, what are you looking for then? Sure. No, my standard answer for any type of question like this is it depends because every situation okay. is different. But to me, I want to get the sense that you have the drive and desire to want to do good, to want to succeed, to want to make your clients happy. And that comes with a certain type of person. Now, yes, some people who talk a lot might be able to get that point across. Some people who are more reserved can get that same point across with fewer words. So I don't believe that there's a, a formula. I believe it's more of that gut feeling where you have to talk to people mm -hmm. and get a sense of who they are. And you just talk to them, find out, I want to know more about you. I don't want to know, you know, about me or my organization. I know that already. And I know you're qualified because if you weren't, my recruiting team wouldn't put you in front of me. So now let's just talk about you. You know, what do you do outside of work? What kind of, you know, life do you live? What's your your family situation like? I can't qualify you on those those answers, but what I can do is just get a feeling for where your passions lie. If you light up and start telling me that you're all excited about your podcast, and I say, fantastic, what's your podcast about? And you tell me it's about interior design. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fantastic that you have that passion, but this might not be that position. But if you tell me your podcast is about leadership and running a team, then fantastic. Now we have something to talk about. So it's just about getting to know people, just like anything else. Just see mm -hmm. if you have that connection. So imagine that that person has uh, survived between brackets uh, the, the the whole procedure. She or he enters, and after a couple of weeks, some coworkers come to you and say, "Jay, 
I don't think it's going to happen. There's something wrong. And she's not fit, he or she is not fitting the team, whatever, some strange behavior. Um, are, are you, what is, what is your option there? Are you going to fire fast or how, of course, of course, I assume you go into a kind of a dialogue, <laughs> but how do you deal with that situation? Because I find it interesting. And the reason why I ask that, because I work in an organization as a sales director and we have the tendency to maybe to let people too long in the organization because we try to coach them, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas sometimes I think people have talents, everybody has talents, but maybe the environment was not right. And maybe it's better to, 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 to look at those talents and to search for another environment, which is not in, in the, in the organization that, so that person can really excel, uh, those, those talents. What's your sure. take on that, Jay? No, that's a, a good way of looking at things too, because I'll tell you, all of these things, these conversations that I, I mentioned and the things we're talking about, they happen fast. They're not. It's not like I want to sit in front of somebody and talk to them for an hour. You know, I will if there's a reason. But the in, in our world, we move fast, so we have to make fast decisions. So mm-hmm. we're t- we're ident- trying to identify somebody for a position quickly. Now, if we're talking about an officer who comes in and says, I want to be an officer, I want to move up, I want to do whatever it takes to, to become a manager and then become an account manager and become an operations manager, I just really want to do this. Okay, fantastic. And then the first day you go out in the field, you come back to me and tell me, I hate it. It's horrible. I can't do this. Well, that is, to me, a lot of that is on us because we didn't talk to you and find out what it is that you were good at. Because I have thousands of open positions, thousands of them, just thousands of clients and, uh, you know, just more open positions than I can think of. So if you were to come to me and say, I want to be an officer and I want to work my way in, okay, well, let's talk. You, you know, do you have an interest in, you know, f- truck yards? And you tell me truck yards. Yeah. Do you, you like sitting in a, a guard shack in a truck yard and talking to truckers? If you tell me, no, no, God, no, that's not what I want to be doing. Well, then that takes a care of my logistics vertical. So I know you're not right for that. Mm-hmm. So now let's talk about hospitals. Do you like the hospital environment? Do you like being around that kind of action? Do you like talking to the patients and dealing with administrative staff? Because if you do, maybe a hospital's the right fit for you. Or maybe it's a tech company. Or maybe you like walking around shopping malls. So there's all sorts of different things. And it's my my responsibility to find out what it is you have a, an interest in. Because if you do have an interest for a truck yard and you are that type of person who likes to talk to truckers and be outside and enjoy the fresh air while you're working, well, then I should know that. And I shouldn't try to put you into a hospital because that's my, the opening that I need the most. Mm. So I think from that point of view, that's on me. Now, when we're dealing with higher level positions, like a management level position, if we're hiring somebody from the outside, where normally I would prefer to hire somebody from the inside, mentor them up. But if I do have to hire somebody from the outside, I do. I'm going to have to hire somebody quickly. And I do that based on my gut feeling. And if it's not the right person or if it's not the right fit, then we have to have a talk. And hopefully we can have that talk and we could identify the root cause and maybe redirect. But if not, then we have to make a decision. And that's a CEO told me once, that decision is happiness. One of us has to be happy, and it's going to be me. So as soon as he said that to me, I, I knew the right things. And I'm like, okay, so either I can be happy here too, 
or I'm not. And if I'm not, he, you know, he was more than willing to help me move to another place that would make me happy. But it was that talk that made me want to work for him and made me want to try. And I, I enjoyed it. So mm, cool. Now, um, I don't have to explain that we are living in a, in a world today that, uh, is evolving, evolving so rapidly that, uh, yeah, it can be tricky to, to follow up that pace. If you now we're 2021, we're, uh, what are we almost July? If you compare now leadership, your vision on leadership today and compare it with 10 years ago, what has changed in your opinion? Oh, I can tell you some some changes. It's mostly the style of leadership. We're no longer um, taking things from an authority. We're no longer telling people, hey, you have to do this because I said so. You know, it's more about trying to coach and mentor people. And but, Sorry to interrupt, but were you also that kind of command and control manager, leader 10 years ago? You know, I don't. I don't think I was ever to the point of barking orders and doing that type of stuff, um, mostly because I spent the first half of my career in the entertainment world. Mm -hmm. So I was more, it was about having fun and working with people and taking on those type of challenges and dealing with artists. And, and there was no real bark order type scenario. Mm -hmm. From there I went on, I taught it the, the engineering practice. I taught it at the colleges and, there was still, even though you are going from a professor down to students, there was no real authority to bark down there either. But I've been around a lot of it, especially in my younger years. I was around managers that would pick up a stapler and throw it at the wall, whizzing right by your head. And, you know, that type of behavior, nothing like that would ever happen today. Or if it does, there'd be much more consequences than there ever were then. So to me, I've always been more about personality and talking to people. And I think it's important to to be the type of leader who is a mentor and trains people and takes responsibility for the actions. And like I said earlier, if it, if someone's not succeeding, it's as much my fault as it is theirs. So if you're not succeeding and if you're having a, a hard time with something, it's my responsibility to identify it. It's my responsibility to help you. And then if you don't take that help, then that's that's when it becomes your responsibility. Yeah. Great. This is really great because I love it how you actually are going to put the organization, your your people, actually that you are pushing them up and uplifting them instead of uh, yeah, you have you have leaders that uh, hire people who are worse than them and they do that on purpose so they look better. Right. I get the feeling from you you do it the other way around because sometimes in certain positions you want people who are smarter for that kind of job than yourself. Absolutely. No, without a doubt. I, I mean, working in the security industry, I always say that it takes some very skilled individuals. I mean, we have people who work uh, putting out the wildfires in California. We have people who are doing, um, that could be doing corporate escorts to different countries and trying to um, deal with kidnapping situations and so forth. Um, so I, I manage all these people. However, I will tell you that I don't know how to do any of their work. Mm -hmm. I'm my role is the the leadership. It's the the managing and the mentoring and the financial reports and all of those things. So I have to hire people who know what they're talking about, and I have to hire people that are smarter than me in that in that end of the world. And I don't take offense to it at all. 
know, even my director of operations is much, much more suited for the position than I am. You know, he's much more, he's very, a very smart individual. However, we have our different strengths. So we work together and we, we form a good team because he focuses on his area of strength and I'll focus on mine. Okay. Now, and, um, and the Jay Frenzy show and friends, um, you have already, um, quite a lot of, um, yeah, recordings, podcast episodes. What for you were some insights that you learned there from other leaders? I could tell you, I learned a lot in, in the podcast world in a short period of time. Um, Although we had some really good guests at the beginning, and I would encourage people to go back and listen to to the show for the guests and their information, but not for the show purposes, because our show didn't really come to light. Uh, I mean, for it took a while, it took a handful of episodes under our belt before we started to realize what we were doing, whether that be the running of the equipment, whether that be the layout and format of the show, whether that be the direction we're taking, if we are we doing interviews, are we doing segments, are we doing um, news or any other type of you know delivery of content. So there was a lot that goes into it. Are we going to stream it live? Are we going to record audio? Are we going to edit the show? Are we going to leave it live? So these are things that a lot of people, they don't know that that happens. And the people who are just in it for the you know, if you want to talk about cars and you want to put together a podcast, you don't want to be editing audio or dealing with video. You want to be talking about cars. So we talk about yeah. leadership and it and just happens to be that we're all technically inclined. We all work in the, we all worked in the audio industry. And uh, yeah, but I was referring to the, the guests that you were having on your, on your show. What were the insights there that you, that you learned from, from those leaders there? Oh, we have, we've had some amazing leaders come on. Uh, we've had people who've worked anywhere from the entertainment. We've had uh, Oscar winners come on. We've had some Grammy winning songwriters come on. We've had some people who are leaders of their industry, whether that be the firearms industry. Uh, we had an amazing guest, Julie Golub, who's a world champion firearms competitor. Uh, she was in the military. She's written books. And talking to her and, and getting insights from her and finding out just the way she did things and how things came about for her and what doors opened. Those are the type of things that we love talking about. Um, we had a, another guest, uh, Rachel Reese, who is an attorney and an amazing attorney and just just fantastic. She is a partner in a practice, but she's also a, a star on TikTok. I mean, she's mm -hmm. got a massive TikTok following and it's just funny to see the different avenues some of these people take or the different interests they have, but are still able to, to hold down the professional world. I mean, that's a, a practice owning attorney who works for the state and federal government as a defense attorney and has a, a TikTok channel to, to primarily teach people what it takes to become an attorney. But she's also on there, you know, doing the little TikTok dances and everything else. Do you dance also on TikTok? Uh, yeah, I, I do. I, I spend a lot of my time dancing on TikTok. Um, no, not at all. <laughs> Me neither. Now, Jay, I mean, as a leader, 
I assume you are learning all the time who is uh, inspiring and influencing you. Are there some kind of leaders that you look up to? Are the cliche, cliche types like um, Steve Jobs and uh, Elon yeah. Musk or something? Or sure. Who are your, your, your examples? Where do you learn? I'm a, a massive Apple user. So okay. Steve Jobs would be uh, one person I should be able to say that. I don't really agree with Steve Jobs. I mean, he's innovative and he's definitely a person who can influence people to do what he wants done. So I think as far as that goes, he's he was a good leader. As far as the authority type leader mm -hmm. that he also was, was probably not the, the way to go. But without it, we wouldn't have the products that I use today. So I can't, can't complain, right? So um, he was able to to get what he wanted one way or another. Now, that's not the way I would choose to get things done. And it's not the the leaders that I would mentor or mold myself after. Now, I never had a, a formal mentor, but I do have people that I look up to and that are mentors of a certain kind. Because mm -hmm. I believe we can learn from anybody. I can watch, you know, a leader in a boardroom and think to myself, wow, that was fantastic. He, you know, what was it that he just did that made everybody happy? And then I could also look at it in a way that, wow, that was probably the wrong thing to say, especially in this crowd. You know, why would he ever do that? And you learn the right things and wrong things. You, that's how you develop your style. You know, it's just like a musician or an engineer. I used to listen to records all the time thinking, oh, man, I wish I knew how to do that. And then it got to a point where it's, I was like, oh, why'd they choose to do that? And as soon as I, I started I, making that change, I started realizing, okay. I, I want to interrupt here. Yeah. What 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 is for you? The, the best engineered mixed record of all time for you? <laughs> best engineered of all time. That you're like, man, that, that record is great. All right. I've, I, narrowing it down to one is tough. I can, yeah, okay. Give me a couple. Sure. Um, my library is broken down by producers and engineers versus artists and actual music. Okay. Um, but the... Obviously, the Lord Algae Brothers, if you know who they are, are probably the two most prominent mix engineers in the world. And I like a lot of what they do. I don't necessarily like the way they do it, but I like what they do. And I hey, like okay. the, can, can you give some examples of artists or records that they uh, that they uh, mixed? Because a lot of these engineers are really the rock stars behind the scene. Sure. A lot of people don't know them. Yeah, no. Um, Chris Lord Algae is probably the more famous, yeah. or at least he was the first, and his brother followed. He mentored his brother, and then his brother blew up. Um, but Chris Lord Algae, he's known for, you know, probably one of the biggest records he's known for is Green Day. Um, but he has done anything from the, the rock world to the country world to the pop world. Um, he did one of my favorite bands. Now, here's a, a really good example. This is... Uh, engineer that I looked up to for his craft. I don't necessarily agree with his personality and the type of, you know, the, the way he does things, but I do like what he creates. And he created an amazing sound and album for, for Green Day. I mm -hmm. mean, just amazing. But then one of my favorite bands was a band called Von Ray. And Von Ray was a band out of Orlando and they were just one of the best bands and musicians I've ever heard. And he mixed their record. And I don't, I don't like the choices made on that record. It, 
It mm. doesn't have the presence and the the drive and feel that a rock record should have. Where it was captured on Green Day, it wasn't captured on Von Ray. And I think the reason behind that, if we, I don't know how technical we want to get, but I think the reason behind that is because they have one way of mixing a record. And that's full on, balls to the wall, pushing every compressor and every piece of equipment to its most. And for Green Day, that worked like a charm. For Von Ray, which is a more nuanced band, and even though they're still a rock band, they have nuances to them. Their vocals, the the vocal of the singer is just amazing. The They have actually acoustic guitars mixed in with electric guitars so that nuance to be able to, to be, still be able to hear the nuances of the acoustic while feeling the drive of an electric. That requires a certain type of a mix that they did not capture on that record or that Chris did not capture on that record. And that, again, it's all opinion. So, yeah. But I saw him mix, uh, on, he has a channel on YouTube and there he is going to explain how he mixes, uh, he does his mixes. And I remember one mix of Muse, the rock band. And I mean, uh, Matt Bellamy has that huge, massive guitar sound. And I don't know how he gets that because it's quite difficult to replicate that live. And then he explains it and it's the separate tracks sound awful. It really sounds, it's like first directly into a, um, uh, the mixing console. So it sounds really, ugh. and, um, but when he combines that, it creates, it creates that, yeah, that huge wall of sound because it's, if you don't know what it is to create a big guitar sound, because it's, it's, it's a craft on its own. Um, so, um, yeah, I, 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 I admire so much the work of a great engineer because for me, because I also create my own music as a kind of a side passion project, but it's still, I mean, it's still, it's still a craft working with the compression at the EQ and how to, to mix those guitars with the bass and the piano and the vocals. It's, it's really an art, especially for the type of vibe and energy that you want to, um, that you bring. It's interesting. It's interesting. Oh, there's definitely an art to it, and that's what a lot of people don't understand, and that's why a good engineer or a bad engineer could really make the mark of a record. And that example was just an, an example of how a great engineer could make one record sound great and another one not so much. Yeah. Are there are there any are there also if 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 a record comes on the radio and you're driving in the car um and it's it's mixed poorly, do you then turn the dial and you go to another channel because you're like, oh, because it's, I'm going to go compare it like this. You have people in the musician scene, which have, um, um, a relative ear and an absolute hearing. So that means absolute hearing. You can play a note and they can say it's a C or a D or an E or whatever. But the thing is, if that note compared to the context is a little bit off, it hurts their ears. Okay. So, um, where Whereas normal people, and normal people, eh? um, <laughs> it sounds a little bit that they're, that they're special. Most but people. Yeah, most people, uh, they don't have that. So that's, it's okay. They're like, mm, there's something off here, but they don't hear it. Is that is that the same for you? Because I am, because as a musician, 
of course I listen I can listen normally to a track but also of course I hear the the bass I hear okay there is an acoustic guitar there is p- piano there is a how they're doing that with the bass oh that's the, how the drummers are played I mean I listen to that drum sound I mean every guitar uh, intro of an 80 song three seconds I can name the song because I just based on the drum I can hear run DMC walk this way just on that yeah that that drum I can say that's run DMC with Aerosmith immediately because I heard that sound over and over again which is a different sound than U2 or Journey or whatever um is that the same for you as an engineer oh absolutely I can I mean my wife laughs at me because I do this with with music all the time but with movies I point out things flaws in movies that she's like I don't need to know that that just ruins it for me um and this same thing with music I hear flaws on the radio all the time but Primarily, it doesn't bother me. If I'm just driving on the radio, it's more about the feel and the groove yeah. and the, the song itself. And that would allow me to forgive some of the production mistakes. But when something does fall in line, where because the best produced album could still be horrible. I mean, you can have the best sounding album ever, and it just could be the worst songs ever, and you don't want to listen to it. So to me, I'd rather have that combination of both. And it doesn't have to be the best of everything. It's art. I mean, so what you like and what I like might be two yeah, different yeah, that's things. True. That's true. Um, you might like a lot of reverb or that, you know, Aerosmith sound. And I might want a tighter, newer, you know, 2000 sound versus the 70 sound. So it's just preference. But as long as things are within that guideline, you know, I like to think of it like, you know, you might have a scale of one to ten. As long as we're, you know, four to four to six or some somewhere in there, we're good. It doesn't always have to be a ten, but I don't want it to be a one or a two either. Yeah, yeah it's uh it's a it's a it's indeed a very personal and subjective thing, eh? I mean, I'm a more of a seventies, eighties martial type of guy in terms of sounds and I don't like that modern sounds. But it doesn't mean that I don't like the song so, songs. If the song is great and there's great melody and, and it kicks with energy or whatever the atmosphere that they're trying to achieve, it works for me. It's fine. I mean, uh, because I play everything. I play everything from Lady Gaga to ZZ Top to Metallica. I don't care. If the song is great, I will play it. I don't care. Sure. What the the, the uh, it's, it's music. Just like Marvin Gaye said, there is only bad and good music. That's it. Yeah. Now, Coming back, um, if you would go back in time, Jay, and you, how young are you right now? What's that? How young are you right now? I'm young. Yeah, that's what I thought you said. I'm not young. I'm 52 years old, sir. 52. They say 50 is the new 30, eh, Jay? Yeah, good. I'm glad they're saying that. Now, if they could make <laughs> me feel like that would be great. <laughs> if you could back, go back and... You, we would go back to to Boston. I love Boston, by the way. I've been there two years ago, uh, and um, I even visited Berkeley, the the big yeah. uh, music university. I mean, it was one of my dreams. Um, and we go back to Boston. We took we take a DeLorean. Uh, you know that kind of movie, yeah. movie from there the eighties. Uh, we're meet, we're meeting the Jay when he's eighteen. He's drinking a beer. He's standing in front of college or university or whatever. What kind of advice would you give the younger Jay, knowing everything you know right now? Well, a couple of things. One that you know, 
breaking the law by drinking a beer at 18, so probably don't get caught. Um, let's see. Advice I would give myself at 18 is, you know, slow down. You know, don't feel like you have to go full speed all the time. Take time to reflect on the things that you're doing. I think reflection has become an important part. And I think that's one thing that has helped me succeed. And I think when it comes down to identifying where you want to go first, then working backwards on how to get there, and then taking the time to reflect along the way and see, is it working for you? Because just because you made a decision doesn't mean it was the right decision. So you make your decision, you plan that, everything, and then you take the time to reflect and take the time to ask yourself, is this the right decision? Is this still the right decision today? Do I still want to be going down this path? If not, why? And what can I do differently? So just take that time to be aware of your surroundings. Don't feel like you're you're painting yourself into a, a corner. And uh, in, in terms of taking decisions, you mentioned a couple of times um, today, you're using also your gut feeling into the mix of making a decision. Already at the, at the age of 18, were you also using your gut feeling back then, or like at least consciously? Um, I would say yes, and that's probably not in a good way at that point. Um, Why? Why? Because my gut was telling me to do things that were a little bit more rebellious than I needed to be. Um, I could have finished school before I, you know, I could, I went to business school, then I went to engineering school, and then I went back to business school. I would have liked to have gone, finished business school completely first, and then done the engineering school. Um, so I wouldn't have had to worry about it later because business, no matter what industry you're in, business is helpful. It helps you along the way. So I was more concerned with making it in the entertainment industry than I was making sure that my credentials needed to be in order. Um, and again, like I mentioned, I don't necessarily believe that every industry or everything, especially these days, requires formal education because you can hop online and you can learn just about anything you want to. So as long as it's not something that requires a license or uh, to become a doctor or something right. i understand yeah. so yeah. you're you're good you can learn that and if you do need it for a purpose if there is a need for the formal education go ahead grab it do it no that's a great one now within within 10 years who is jay where is he standing Whew. in his life Ten, doing yeah, the I, same things is I, the I, podcast I then becoming uh the biggest YouTube hit on all, and then uh, you're no longer working for G4S? Well, um, I yeah, I, I think that path is going to change, but I think it's going to just continue evolving, and hopefully things keep keep evolving into something bigger and better, things that I'm passionate about. Um, as far as, like, do I think... I, I'm not one of those people who wait for retirement or, oh, man, in a few years I won't have to work. I, I will never say that. I always want to work. I don't think that my work is things that, you know, when I look at work, I don't think of it as, oh, I have to do this. I think of it as, oh, I get to do this. I get to make a record today or I get to work with this team of people today. You know, I get to meet with, you know, anybody from leaders to politicians to musicians. You know, not many people get to, to do that. You know, and I'm, I don't take any of it for granted. I really enjoy every bit of it, no matter which avenue or vertical I'm, I'm working within okay i have a very 
I, I, I want to talk uh, first another question. In our VP, I mean, you really pivoted yourself professionally. I mean, having such a big title and such a big position, did you never thought about yourself? Wow, the sun is shining through my. I mean, and that you that your ego was like, I'm the guy right now. Look at me, how because you seem like a very humble and serve serving. Yes, that's it, leader. How, how what's the deal? What's the secret there? How do you keep your ego in check, Jay? Well. Maybe when I was younger, that 18-year-old drinking the beer in, in college, getting ready to go into the to the world, I think maybe my ego may have been a little bit bigger at that point. Um, working on my first big records, I probably felt pretty good about myself. Mm-hmm. But even then, it took so long. In, I mean, I worked for 15 years before I got to work in the studio with big-time people. I, I cut my teeth recording books on tape and you know things that people don't want to do. So by the time I made it to that point, I was older and I was grateful and I wasn't at a point where I'm thinking, oh, look at me. I was just thinking, oh, thank God I'm here. What can I do? You know, what what can I do to, to stay here now that I've made it here? And if that meant catering to the artists or the producers and, you know, never once did I say, oh, you're doing that wrong or try to, you know, insert my opinions or stuff. I just wanted to be involved and learn from the best. Mm. A lot of a lot of people have limiting beliefs about themselves and what they are what they can achieve. It seems with you that um I mean you have been what people would like to call very successful. Um where do you get that mentality or that mindset that you are able to um reach um everything or that you that you want? Because a lot of people wouldn't maybe They think, yeah, I'm not good enough. I'm, I will stay in the entertainment sector. I don't want to take the next. I don't think. I don't see myself as a leader. Uh, where did you get that mentality? Was that from your parents? Was that from friends? Uh, where did you get that kind of, uh, yeah, positive, uplifting mentality? I don't know if it's the the positive or uplifting to me. I I don't think like my father worked in the same career for his entire life. Um, my mother was primarily a stay at home mom, but when she was working, she was in the, um, she was a hairdresser and worked in that industry. So to me, it's not like I'm trying to think of things far enough outside of my world that I think, Oh, I could never do that. You know? Yes. I didn't think I was going to become the VP of a, of the world's largest security company. Didn't think that was going to happen. However, when I got involved and realized, well, okay, I can do this and I can do that and just take it one step at a time and keep going, keep identifying that next step on the ladder and saying, okay, what is it going to take to just get to there? So just bite everything off in small chunks and move a little bit at a time. It was the same thing in the entertainment industry. You know, people don't realize I was, like I said, making books on tape, nothing that anybody's going to say, oh, there's a Grammy for you or there's some, you know, a project I wished I could have worked on. But it paid the bills, you know, it paid the bills and it allowed me to learn each piece of equipment. And when I learned that equipment, I was able to then go ahead and move that to the next step. And maybe on my next record, incorporate another piece of equipment or a different step or approach I didn't take the first time. And uh, did you work on a Grammy uh, awarded uh, record? I've 
Yeah, I've worked on a handful of, I've never won a Grammy. I don't want to give anybody that impression, but I've worked on a, a lot of records and with artists that that have won the Grammys, yes. And can you can you give us some names? Because I'm quite curious there. Because it, for me, I'm based in Belgium, Europe. It sounds like, I don't know, did, I didn't, did you work on, on the record of Brad Paisley? I don't know. Uh, that's now and that's now a country. Um, you know, I um, I did not work on a record of Brad Paisley's, but I have met him. Fantastic guy. Um, or Keith I've, Urban. Keith that's Ur a guy which is not known in Belgium or in Europe at all. Really? Uh, he's an amazing guitar player. He's definitely one of the best guitar players, country singers, artists out there. He was the very first show that I engineered when I moved to Nashville. Oh I didn't God. work on a record, but I, I engineered a show. Amazing. Very first he's, a great, one. he's a great performer too, eh? giving gu guitars away. I mean, yeah. he's, he's everything, the performance, the looks, he can play amazing, tasty, melodic solos. I mean, it's, oh, it's he's fantastic. fantastic. Uh, same t same with his duet with Ale duets. He, he plays sometimes with, uh, uh, what's it, the other, um, um, John Mayer, for instance. I mean... It's also, uh, but these kind of people are not not so known in in Europe or in Belgium. It's strange, oh, that's, eh, but that's too bad. No, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. I've worked on a lot of a lot of country records in Nashville. I was um, lucky enough to I met three producers that I worked for. A guy named Bob Bullock, who was um, the most seasoned. Um, he started before anybody else. He recorded big records like Kenny Rogers, um, tra Travis Tritz. Um, just countless, countless, Kenny Chesney, just all these big, big records. And I had an opportunity to work with him for about three years before. Um, I also worked with a guy named Matt McClure, who is middle of the road, still up and coming. He did, um, Oh, a handful of middle of the road, um, Lee Bryce artists like that. He's worked with a lot of songwriters. Um, and then I worked with a guy named Jim Cristaldi who's worked on, thousands of records songwriting and so forth but they're probably things that nobody's heard of and i was able to learn from each one of those people and able to apply that to my own stuff when i finally got the the chance to produce my own records if you if you would uh, work for a guy like uh, keith urban these guys it's a, it sounds like a cliche but sometimes you hear like the biggest stars if they are rock stars or country stars doesn't matter they are the most humble and it's that middle class people who are up and coming who sometimes have like a, a big ego. Is that true, that cliche or is uh, it a some little of bit them. too? Yeah, no, most of them are down to earth and great people, but there have been a few that, that were a little too much. Okay, like like a guy like Brad Paisley, he seemed like a really nice guy. There is he, no... he was awesome. Uh, amazing, amazing. Keith now, Urban was awesome. Is he? Yeah, he was fantastic. One of the, the nicest people I ever met in the industry. That's amazing. Man, I would do every, everything. I would do a lot to meet these guys. I mean, it's they're so they're so passionate and uh yeah, it's it's they've did a song together, eh? Um Paisley and Urban about uh, becoming a, a rock star. It's an amazing, great uh it's a great song. It's a great. Song. I like. I like their styles because they. It's not a. It's not a classic country. It's it that it has that, uh, urban Ikit urban more than than Brad Paisley, but it has that more modern rock feeling injected into the, the country um, they are playing. So um, yeah, I like it a lot. Oh, hey, Man, it's, well, it's amazing. Let me know next time you come to town, and we'll take a tour of the the city. Yeah.
Yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that, uh, Jay. Now, is there anything else that you want to add that we did not talk about, Jay? No, I mean, just if anybody wants to check out the show and learn more, um, please do. Franzianfriends.com. You can also find me at jfranzi.com. Um, and if you go to jfranzi.com, not only will you find the show information, but you also find the, the music and the, the history there as well. Okay. Is there something at this moment, 2021, that you like a lot in terms of artists? Um, it's funny. I, I listen to some hard rock lately. I listen to um, Five Finger Death Punch. Um, oh, yeah. So yeah. that's a, a one I listen to regularly. I like the band Hailstorm a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, growing up, Journey was my favorite band. Journey. Love it. Oh. Oof, I listened yesterday to Don't Stop Believing. I, every time I love <laughs> it. And I've done, I say I saw Journey during the COVID period. They have done with Narada Michael Walden on drums. Uh, because Neil Sean on guitars and uh, uh, what's the singer? The new singer, of course. Yeah. Um, and I don't know who was the bass player. And they did uh, Don't Stop Believing. And it's an amazing, amazing Corona v- COVID version. It's oh, an yeah. amazing version. It's uh, I, it's still, it's a number of 1981, but it's still. One of the best still, songs ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing. And I, I still have that drive and that. Uh... Okay, cool. Now, Jay, I want to thank you a lot for the hour. We made it uh, due to the technical <laughs> start in the beginning i go. want to thank you a lot for your time and um yeah i'm going to put all the details in the show notes so people can follow you thanks a lot for sharing because i really like this thanks for sharing and your leadership tips and insights as music tips because i really like that kind of uh, combination jay oh fantastic i appreciate you having me on if there's ever anything i can do please feel free to reach out you too thanks jay bye-bye bye now Hey, it's Peter here. Thanks a lot for listening to What's On Your Mind. Looking forward to your opinions and comments. And don't forget to subscribe on psgrow.com and leave your email address to stay tuned for future episodes. Bye!